Welcome to the Once in Future Authors podcast. I'm Stephanie, and I'm so excited to be joined by author Rob Sanborn today. Rob is the author of The Prisoner of Paradise, a fantastical novel of Tintoretto's Renaissance masterpiece. And of it, he writes, a 400-year-old murder, a disembodied whisper, amore mio, my love. Nick and Julia O'Connor's dream trip to Venice collapses when a haunting voice reaches out to Nick from Tintoretto's Paradise, the world's largest oil painting. Though Julia worries her husband suffers from a delusion, Nick is adamant the voice belongs to a woman from the 16th century, his soulmate from a previous life. He discovers a religious order that has developed a method of extracting people's souls, which they imprison in paradise. Over the centuries, they've judged thousands of souls and sentenced them to eternal purgatory. As infatuation with the past clouds his commitment to a present day wife, Nick must right an age old wrong destroy the painting and liberate his soulmate, but freeing her would allow all the souls to be reborn. The order would never let that happen. Please welcome author Rob Sanborn. Rob, so thanks, so great to have you here. Stephanie, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, also, happy Valentine's Day. Oh, thank say. you. Thank you very much. And uh, love that we're sitting here discussing, I mean, kind of a love story gone awry, right? Yes, you ab absolutely is that. And also, thank you for reading the summary. It's, it's really cool always to hear somebody read that out loud. Well, you, you did a great job. I know that I added an extra vowel to uh, to, to one of the words there. <laughs> That's quite all words. right. What, one extra vowel won't hurt anybody, but uh, I, I always like to do that because I wanna make sure that our, our listeners get to meet you and know what we're talking about, not sitting there saying, What's the book about? I don't know. What's the book about? And now they all now they're ignoring us totally because they're all buying the book, which is exactly what I want to happen. That would be nice. And <laughs> to your point, yes, it, it it you know it's classified as a thriller. It's actually cross genre. It's a thriller blended with historical fiction and yes. a little bit of magical realism as well. But at its heart, really is a love story. Love story. Um, without giving anything away, it could potentially be a love story gone awry. <laughs> Well, I figured because it's Valentine's Day, I'm going to characterize it as a, a love story gone awry. But yes, it is. Uh, and I love it that it's got some fantastical realism in it. That's just amazing. But tell me, what inspired this? Were you on a, a trip to Italy and you stood there and heard a voice? How did this get started? <laughs> Almost, actually. So it did happen on a trip to Italy in Venice. Um, and I, I don't have you ever been to Italy or, or to Venice? I have. I adore Italy and I've been fortunate enough to be in Venice. Yes. Yeah. So you know how incredible it is. It's really one of the most remarkable cities on the planet um, for the listeners out there who have not been there, you know, Italy, first of all, is an incredible place to go, but Venice specifically is a floating city that was built a little over a thousand years ago. And when I say a little, it was probably 1100 years ago um, uh, on a swamp. And the entire city is built on petrified logs. 
millions of them. And then they basically built a marble city on top of the swamp. And, you know, everybody in the world knows that there are canals and there are no motorized vehicles or, or wheeled vehicles, I should say, as well, other than, I guess, push carts and stuff. You don't see people riding bikes. Um, so really, the only ways around are walking or by boat. Um, and there's a story around every corner because it's so picturesque. It's so mis mysterious, you know, these tiny little alleys and these incredible buildings that all have stories within them. And <clears throat> there is a Renaissance artist from, um, from Venice. His name is Jacopo Tintoretto. And he's not necessarily a household name, but I would put him in maybe the top five or six of all the great Renaissance artists. And he, his work really just, every single piece I've ever seen by him just imbues emotion. It's unbelievable. And there's one particular museum called um, uh, the Scuola di San Rocco in Venice, which is used to be a confraternity of um, artists, I believe, and, and um, craftsmen and, and artisans. And, but now it's museum and it's filled with Tintoretto's work. So my book actually was originally inspired by a different Tintoretto painting uh, called The Crucifixion, which is obviously about the crucifixion. <laughs> and what's incredible about this particular painting of the crucifixion is that first of all, it's very, very large. It's probably about 25 or 30 feet wide by maybe about 15 or 20 feet high. And most paintings of the crucifixion are very, you know, like focused on the singular um, scene of Jesus on the cross and all that. This painting is like a wide angle. You know, if, if you were creating a movie, this would be the establishing shot where you see everything else going on uh, in the scene. It's, it's really remarkable. And there's probably about 75 different people in this painting, and which is a, a lot of people to paint. And he was such an incredible painter that each one of these people, they look like portraits. And they really run the gamut of who they are from gender to race to age and, and you name it. So it's, it's just like so many different people. So I started wondering like, who were all these different people that got in this painting? And not, not just that one, but all the paintings around, right? It's like, obviously painters used models, but did, did he have a line of 75 people out the door waiting to be painted? Probably not. So I started thinking, okay, well, who were these people that got really immortalized into this work, right? I mean, they are now there forever. Um, and so I started thinking, okay, maybe it was really their souls that were actually captured and put into that painting. Uh, so that's really how the story came to be and how it blossomed. And from there, I did some more research into Tintoretto. And then I found the painting Paradise, which blew me away um, because first of all, it's incredible and I'll describe it in a moment. But second of all, it really was the perfect content for the story that I wanted to tell. So Paradise is the world's largest oil painting. Uh, it's about 80 feet wide by about 40 feet high. And it's also 12 feet off the ground, off the floor. So it's just massive. And the painting, um, it depicts the coronation of Mary in heaven. And if the crucifixion has 75 people, Paradise probably has about a thousand people. It's just a sea of faces. So it was absolutely perfect for the story that I wanted to tell. So the main character in the book, Nick, the woman who he believes is his soulmate, she's not the only one in the painting. 
she's one of thousands in the painting. Wow. Where is this Paradise painting, if I went to see it? Paradise is in a building called the Palazzo di Cale or the Doge's Palace in oh, English. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah. And that's actually one of the top tourist attractions yes, in Venice. Yes, it is, absolutely. Yeah, so it's right on St. Mark's Square. And the Doge's Palace itself is actually quite interesting and is one of the major locations, obviously, in the book. And it's essentially a combination of like the White House and Congress. Uh, the Doge was an elected leader by the senators of the Venetian Republic, by the way. Venice at one point was the largest maritime power in the world, and it was a republic, um, and they had senators who elected the Doge, who was essentially the duke or the leader, but he was uh, there for life, and he also lived in this building. Um, so he lived in this building, and then it's also where the senators met, and the room where Paradise is located at one point was actually the largest room in all of Venice. I mean, Europe, sorry, excuse me. It's still the largest room in all of Venice. It was the largest room in Europe. Now you once lived in Italy. Did you live in Venice? No, I lived in Florence actually. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, so I spent a summer um, between uh, two years in college and with uh, five or six friends and we all shared one big room in Florence. Uh, to this day, it was probably still the best summer of my life. So a couple of us worked in a leather market by day and at night we actually played in a band. I'm also a musician, so it was pretty amazing. So we would sell leather jackets to tourists and invite them to the show and they would come and it was a great summer. <laughs> and what do you play? I play guitar and sing. Do you really? Wow. A band in, in Italy, or, that's like the dream, yeah. isn't it? It was, yeah. Or I should say I used to. I don't, I don't still do that, so. <laughs> <laughs> the calluses have all worn away now, huh? Pretty much. Ah, oh, too bad, too bad. I, I love the way you describe the inspiration. You know, so many people that I know who want to write and will say, I don't have any ideas. And the ideas are everywhere. You know, you just happen to be in this museum and saw those people and the way you described seeing so many and wondering where did he get the inspiration for them? What if they were souls? And boom, 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 boom. Next thing you know, we have the prisoner of paradise. I mean, just amazing. Thanks, yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because quite honestly, I have the opposite problem. I have too many ideas. I have a list of dozens and dozens of ideas for things and it's just, I don't have the time <laughs> to write them all. Right, I yeah. yeah, I mean, you, you're also a screenwriter. So like, how, does, how, did, how do you decide which ideas are the good ones? Like if you have that many ideas going on, how did you say, you know what, this paradise thing, this one's gonna, this one's gonna do it. Whereas other ones you said no. Yeah, that's a great question. I like to think of what would be, it's two things. One is what stays with me the most. Mm. And two is what I, I think, or maybe some other people sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll you know, knock some ideas around with other people, what's potentially the most marketable. Oh, good for you for thinking that because a lot of people don't. And um, they have that attitude of, let me write the book that I want to write and not worry about the market until they want to market it. And then they're kind of stuck, so. Absolutely. And it's very different between screenwriting and book writing, um, namely because of, of budget, production budget. Right. So it's like I, I have written scripts specifically that have a low would have a lower budget. Um, but if you're writing a book, it doesn't make a difference. You're 
your your movie version of the book could be a trillion dollars. <laughs> right, right. It may not be made into a movie, but the book itself doesn't matter. You know, it's so funny you say that because I've had people who come to me and say, um, you know, I have this idea. It's really a screenplay that I'm thinking about. And I will have said to them, and, and I say this, I'm not you at all. I have no zero experience being the screenwriter. But my reaction is, hey, listen, why don't you think about writing it as a novel? Because you don't need a budget. Like if you write a screenplay, I mean, it's a billion dollar thing. Whereas if you write a book, you get to, you get to have it fleshed out the way you want. Is that true or is that, you know, am I still- Yes, it's a hundred percent true. They're very <laughs> different animals. Um, you know, they're, they're both, I, first of all, talking about just the story itself, oftentimes I use the analogy of, of playing an instrument to it. It's, it's kind of like playing the same exact song, one on, let's say like a, a church organ or, you know, the biggest, the most complex uh, instrument you can imagine. And the other one on drums and no disrespect to drums. I love the drums. I actually have dabbled in it. So, but you can get the idea of just in terms of the, the difference of, of the writing process, you could say, or the craft. And each one does have its own distinct challenges, right? It's like, it's not easy to be a drummer. Um, but then you're absolutely right about the actual making of it. So it's obviously a lot less expensive to make that book, but, you know, and beyond just the physical production of the book, whatever's on the pages, it, it doesn't matter, you know. Uh, unless you have expectations of it being made into a movie. And if it's this massive budget, probably won't happen. Whereas with the script, it's incredibly important. And you do need to have expectations and, you know, a realistic approach to what the budget might be of that movie. And I have known screenwriters who have written these scripts that would require these, you know, quarter billion dollar budgets. And then they wonder why they're not selling. And it's because it's, it's, would be incredibly difficult to make. I mean, it, it happens sometimes, but you know, unless you're James Cameron, <laughs> it's probably not gonna happen. I, I must admit, I've had the absolute privilege of interviewing, I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of authors. You're my first one that kind of equated a novel versus a screenplay to the drums versus a pipe organ. I'm kind of loving that. Um, especially Yeah, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's really accurate, but it's you know, something like that. Well, it's very funny because I, like you, am a musician as well, and I actually do play the pipe organ. So oh. I'm loving your analogy here. I'm like, I'm going to And to be clear, by the way, in terms of the craft of writing, it's books that are the pipe organ. Yes, well, because you've got to supply everything. Absolutely. And not yeah. only that, you know, with a script, it's just also about the grammar and the language. You know, yes. again, screenwriting has its own unique challenges and techniques and skills, right. but it's much closer, let's say, to poetry. I know this respect to poetry, but you you don't you're you're you don't necessarily have to have perfect grammar. You can Absolutely. have a one-word sentence. You know, it could be like. He jumps, runs, and then it, that's pretty much it. Exactly. Um, with a book, it needs every single sentence needs to be perfect. And, and also with the book, you are fleshing out those characters yourself as the author, whereas with the screenplay, many times you would be giving um, indications of what you want, but you're also going to have other artists involved, whether it's actors, 
um, you know, prop people, you know, the yes. whole thing. So with absolutely the, the mu music alone could change the emotion of a scene. Um, where with, with books, you need to put that in. And by the way, one of the best writing classes I have ever taken for both screenwriting or novel writing was an acting class. Really? Yes. And I highly recommend every writer out there to take an acting class because it, especially screenwriters, but even for novel writers as well, because it opens your eyes as to how someone else interprets your characters. And it's all about what is the, the character's motivation? Um, what's their goal for the scene? So when you kind of look at it like that, you know, you really kind of put yourself a little bit more into the characters and you think, okay, what is, if I'm that character, what is my motivation for this scene? You know, who am I as this person? What are, what, what are my goals? And what's the sense of urgency here? So oh, it's, it's I love quite that. And like you said, even our novelists need to be thinking about those things if you want your right. characters to really come alive. Because exactly. one of the tough things for a novelist is you don't have the benefit of a trained actor taking your words and interpreting them for the viewer. You need to do it all yourself. Yeah, exactly. And it's also, you know, reading work out loud. And it's quite different. And, you know, I've mentioned this before when you, um, you read the summary aloud. And it's, you know, everybody interprets the words differently. You know, you might have a different pause between two different words, but hearing that, it brings it out. It makes it alive. And especially when people are reading dialogue. Exactly. So it's really important to, to put that life into the words. Well, speaking of which, is there going to be an audio book and are you going to read it? <laughs> I'm not going to read it, but yes, there is going to be an audio book actually. Um, I believe I can announce this, uh, but so the Prisoner of Paradise is the first of a series. So I have a three book deal with Touchpoint Press and the second book will be coming out in October. And uh, Tantor Audio uh, has purchased the rights to all three books. Oh. So the first audiobook, um, I don't have a date for it yet, but I believe it should be fairly soon. And I don't know who's going to be reading it. Fantastic, congratulations on that. That's Thank you. amazing. Um, any hints where the rest of the books in the series, do they all take place in Venice or someplace else? They don't all take place in Venice. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I can, excuse me, I can hint at it. Um, so you mentioned there's this secret society, this ancient religious order, and we discover moving forward into the books that they're a lot bigger than just Venice. Mm. And there's another thing about it that I can reveal because this is actually, um, I wouldn't say common knowledge, but it's certainly public, um, which is that Tintoretto actually painted three versions of Paradise. So the first two were studies for it and the studies themselves are quite large. And one is in the Louvre in uh, Paris right. and the other one is in a museum called the Tyson Bonamisa in Madrid. Gotcha. gotcha. So those are pretty good hints as to where it goes. Well, now, now we uh, want you to get back to the drawing board and keep writing, that's for sure. Right, 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 we wanna read more. <laughs> yeah, and this is Tintoretto by the way on my mug. Oh, very nice. Very That's cool. A self portrait. Very cool. Now I know you are quite the avid traveler yourself, and I, I that's that's why I do my whole life is just to be able to travel. Uh, <laughs> Forty yeah. countries, nine languages. Can you really speak nine languages? I've studied nine languages. 
<laughs> How far yeah. studied? Like conversational or ordering a pizza? At, at one point, I was conversationally fluent in Japanese, actually. Ooh. And I probably could get back into it fairly quickly. Uh, so I studied Japanese for a very long time and I lived in Tokyo for a year and I also used to work for the Japanese government. And then I would say I was pretty good in Spanish as well. Um, I can certainly order a pizza, but then I could talk about the pizza too. <laughs> Ooh, that's even better. So you've lived in America, Italy and Japan, where else? Um, so I also studied in uh, Greece and Hungary and um, those are the only countries that I've lived in. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're all over the globe with this new series, which is just fantastic. Yes. So it, it becomes more of, it's always going to be that love story at heart. Mm -hmm. um, and it always will be cross genre between uh, thriller, historical fiction, and uh, magical realism. So it always will have those parts, but the thriller aspect becomes bigger, you could say. Right. Um, so it does become, it has more global, it's not that they're not globe trotting, um, but you know, it's not James Bond, right. but it does have global consequences. Yes, gotcha, gotcha. Now, this was your first book, is that correct? This one that, that is correct, yes. Okay. Tell me, what were you surprised by when you wrote a book? Either the process or the book release? I mean, did you go into this with your eyes wide open saying, I know exactly how this is gonna pan out. I don't just mean the storyline, I mean the act of becoming an author. No, and if anybody actually does that and they hit it right, <laughs> just let me know. <laughs> um, I think a lot of authors go through this where you, you do find out a lot of stuff. So. First of all, I actually wrote The Prisoner of Paradise as a screenplay originally. Okay. And it was optioned by um, a production company founded by DreamWorks execs. So that was pretty cool. It didn't get made, obviously. And when the rights reverted back to me, I decided to adapt it into a novel. So I had the, the brilliant idea of, oh, I'll make a book real quick and then I'll have the screenplay ready to go. Um, <laughs> so as any uh, author knows, that is not how it, how it goes. And as I was saying before, you know, if, if let's say you are an expert drummer, then learning how to play the pipe organ is if you even it's the exact same song that you have memorized, it's a whole other world. Mm -hmm. So it did take a lot longer to write the book. And then of course, um, I went through the process of finding an agent. I'm represented by Brower Literary Management who are amazing. And they uh, got the deal with Touchpoint Press. Um, this was actually right before the pandemic hit. So it was delayed about a year. Um, so that took a little extra time. And then, so I suppose what surprised me was the time that it took. Um, and then I guess, I don't know if it was a surprise, but maybe I wasn't prepared for the amount of, of detail or um, that really went into the book versus the screenplay. Interesting, interesting. Well, most, most new authors don't have the benefit of, well, it's, I expect it to be like a screenplay, but it's not <laughs> kind of a thing. Yeah. And then, you know, there was one other thing actually that surprised me in a, in a great way, which is that as I was writing the book, first of all, it got so much better than the screenplay ever was. And it just organically evolved into not only being better, but also bigger. 
So when I first wrote the script and when I went out to write the book, my intent was always to make it a standalone. I never, never planned on making it a series. But the characters themselves um, basically didn't want to pack it up and retire, those who didn't die. <laughs> and so the story, like I said, really organically bloomed into a much, much bigger thing. And now it might go beyond three books as well. So I have ideas to, um, to bring this, the story um, from The Prisoner of Paradise into probably five books. And then the other nice thing about writing historical fiction is that I can pick out time periods prior to the present day. And uh, so I'm probably gonna write spinoffs at different points in time for those periods as oh, well. Oh, I love that. Now let, tell me something from a writing perspective. Um, how long did the first book take for you to write? Are you getting faster? Are you getting slower? How's that going? Yeah, so it's hard to actually quantify how long the first book took because there was so much stopping stoppage time. Right. Um, you know, when you're querying agents and when then the, the agents are uh, submitting it to publishers and all that. So, but I do think that it, the process was probably about five years or so. It was a pretty long time. And now I'm getting way faster. So the second book probably took about a year to write. And then the third book I'm hoping will maybe take about nine or 10 months. And then the other nice thing about having an agent um, already and also three book deals, I don't have to spend the time getting an agent or a publisher. So that's pretty nice. That's true, fantastic. Well, for someone who has lived all over the globe, where are you living now? I live in Denver. Ah. So I'm originally from New York, right around your neck of the woods, oh. born in Queens. I uh, lived on Long Island and also in the city. And then uh, I moved to LA for a pretty long time. And then my wife, daughter, dog, and I moved to Denver a little bit over two years ago. All right. So the global traveler has decided that Denver is the place. Denver is absolutely lovely. I was there just before the pandemic um, having hot dogs at biker gyms. Have you been to biker gyms? Is that the place that has or like uh, exotic? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I have been there and it was pretty cool. So for people who do not live in Denver, if you ever come here, it's a pretty cool place where they have like ostrich dogs and, and buffalo. Elk and bison. Elk and, yeah, and, and it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yes, when I was last uh, in Denver, that was like, oh, we got to go to biker gyms. I heard about that. What else should I see in Denver next time I'm there? Well, definitely the mountains. Mm -hmm. So obviously the skiing here is amazing, but also in the summertime, actually, the, the mountains are majestic and amazing. Um, Rocky Mountain National Park is incredible. There's a place called Estes Park, uh, which is beautiful. All that stuff, of course, is outside of Denver. Uh, Denver itself, um, I would go downtown and, you know, there are some cool uh, restaurants and there's a great music scene here. Red Rocks Amphitheater is an amazing place to see a concert. And uh, they also have great beer and uh, spirits as well. <laughs> and we're hopefully, uh, I'd love to say we're coming out of this pandemic as somebody who has been a huge traveler. I'm not sure how much you've traveled over the past two years. <laughs> very, very little. So I don't know how much you traveled either, <laughs> but you know, if you're a big traveler too, you're probably itching. I was gonna uh, say, where's your next place? Where are you going? Yeah, so the next place hopefully will be Europe. Um, so we've we've done a lot of traveling within Colorado, so road trips. So that, I, 
you know, I don't know if there's a silver lining, we probably would have done it anyway, but it definitely kind of like forced us to stay within Colorado and do these trips. We did take a trip back to New York to see family. And then um, over the holidays this past December, we actually drove to LA and back. So that was pretty cool. My daughter is six. So she got to see the American West and the desert and all that. So that was a lot of fun. And then my brother actually lives in London. Okay. Um, and we have some friends in Amsterdam. So we haven't booked the tickets yet, but I think I'm actually going to do that after this call <laughs> um, okay. to go to London, Scotland, which I've never been to and Amsterdam as well. It's time for this global traveler to get back at the airport. That's for yes. sure. And, and I wouldn't mind actually taking some trips to where um, the next books take place as well. So that's definitely on my list to go to, to Madrid and, and back to Paris. Right. I've never been to Madrid. You've never been to Madrid yet. You're writing a book about it. Yes. I've been to Spain a couple of times, but never Madrid. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I'm sure there's a lot of research going into that book then. There sure is, um, but fortunately we have the internet. You know, it's an interesting thing about that. I, I say a lot that I don't know how people were able to write books pre-internet. I mean, I guess they went to the library and looked <laughs> in encyclopedias, but what about before that? Exactly. Um, you know, I, maybe they had the luxury of going, you know, but like, unless you were Hemingway, you, didn't, you know, or F. Scott Fitzgerald, you didn't necessarily have that luxury. Um, so it's pretty remarkable. So my hat's off to them all the time because I get lost in research quite a bit. Sometimes I spend hours on something that might be one sentence in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm telling all of your readers right now, you'd better appreciate every last sentence because hours and hours of time went into it. Just Thanks. to remind all of our uh, readers and listeners out there, um, The Prisoner of Paradise by Rob Sanborn, a fantastical novel. I love the word fantastical novel of this Renaissance masterpiece. What a story. And uh, you better get started because there's plenty more on the way. So you definitely want to get wrapped up in this story. And thank you so much for joining me. And I hope that that suitcase gets packed so you can keep touring and keep writing. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, it was wonderful speaking with you and I hope that your suitcase gets packed as well. Absolutely. Um, where's, where's your next destination? Actually, I'm, I'm looking at going to South America, which I've never been to before. So. Uh, where in South America? Oh, like everywhere. <laughs> but, but certainly Machu Picchu is very high on my list. I've been there. It's phenomenal. Uh, Peru, Peru, all of Peru is oh, yes. really, really, really cool. Definitely look into other areas besides Machu Picchu and Lima, um, both of which are amazing. But um, Peru is incredible because you have everything from the jungle to snow-covered mountains yeah. to desert. Uh, it's quite remarkable. Uh, and Machu Picchu is just is mind-blowing. Well, I can't wait. Thank you so much. And thanks for joining me. And please do me a favor. When that next book comes out, please let me know so we can- I absolutely it. will. Thank you so much, Stephanie. This has been a pleasure. You're welcome. And happy Valentine's Day again. Thanks, you too. Thank you.